Take your Bibles out and turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. And would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word, please? Acts chapter 4. What it looks like when Jesus reigns in your life. What it looks like when Jesus reigns, R-E-I-G-N-S. When Jesus reigns in your life. Look at verse 13. And then I'm going to have you turn back to chapter 3 also, and we're going to do a good amount of reading. Verse 13, our key verse tonight I want us to cover, says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now turn back with me to chapter 3, beginning there in verse 1. This sets the table for that verse. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now look down at chapter 4 verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. 
But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they'd set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power, by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now look over at verse 17, the charge they were given. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. And so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Father, I pray tonight that you would open our minds and hearts and our eyes and our ears to your word. Lord, that we would take note of what it's like when Christ reigns. We thank you for the example of the early church and the apostles and what we learn from their experiences and what they wrote and taught and preached. And Lord, I pray that it could be said of us that people would take note that we've been with Jesus. May it be so in each believer's life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Dr. James Kennedy, in one of his books on evangelism, he tells about a scenario when a young man had gone by one of these little mom-and-pop stores on one occasion. And uh, as he was talking to the proprietor, he said, Sir, do you sell salt? And the proprietor said, Do we sell salt? Come here and look a minute. And he took him down aisles where they had popcorn salt, table salt, rock salt, garlic salt, every kind of salt imaginable. And the young man said, sir, you do sell salt, don't you? He said, well, that's nothing. Come here, follow me. And he walked him back into a back room, into a food pantry, and the shelves were covered with different kinds of salt. And he said, you sell salt. And he said, that's not all. Come follow me. And he walked him down into the cellar, and the cellar was filled with all the same kinds of salt. 
And the young man again said, Sir, you sell salt. And the store owner said, No, actually I don't. That's the problem. But that young salt salesman who comes by here, now boy, he sells salt. (laughs) Now salt that stays on the shelf doesn't do anybody any good. Now we know as Christians we've been called to live lives of influence. Jesus in Matthew 5 said you're the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. As I preached recently what Jesus is talking about there is influence. The life of the believer is to have influence. And folks, we look in the book of Acts and see what the Lord Jesus began to do through a little band of just 120 disciples and how they turned the world upside down. And it is amazing what God did through these men. We know that history was literally changed. Well, if we're going to be men and women of influence and make a difference in this world, then how can that happen? How can God take us and change our world? Well, the answer lies in what the religious leaders noticed about Peter and John. They noticed that they had been with Jesus. Now, how important do we consider it to be today for men to be able to look at us and say, there is someone who has been with Jesus? Would anybody ever say that of you or me? Charles Spurgeon once said there is something in the very tone of the man who has been with Jesus which has more power to to touch the heart than the most perfect oratory. Now verse 13 here, this verse is the key to the influential Christian life. What will life be like for somebody where Jesus reigns in their life? First of all, I want you to notice that a life where Jesus reigns is characterized by love. A life characterized by love. Chapter 3, as you look back to chapter 3, records the narrative as to why Peter and John were in such hot water. Verse 2 says, And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Apparently most people didn't pay him much attention beyond uh, tossing a coin from time to time into his container. Now we know that back in ancient times uh, people being at the gate of the temple or the gate of the synagogues was very common. They, they didn't have the various programs that the poor have today to get help. They had to live a hand-mouth existence, whatever donations they could get from people. And so it was very common as you would be walking about, going around uh, Judea to find people stationed at key places, key intersections, again, synagogues and the temple, and they would be begging. You've pulled up to intersections in Charlotte, I'm sure, and seen people do that. Now usually, with the exception of last week, a poor fellow I saw in Nashville, usually I don't give those folks cash because you don't know what they're going to go and do with that. There's no accountability. But it was common back then 
for the beggars to be there. And as Peter and John came along, they fastened their eyes on him and he on them. They made eye contact and and Peter and John reached out to him with the love of God. And I wonder if we do the same with people around us. If we're ever going to make an impact on our world today and, and people say of us, now there's a group of people that no doubt about it, Jesus is in control of their lives. Our lives are going to have to be characterized by love. Every day in the world, you and I meet men and women who need to be reached with the gospel. They're not going to come here. They're not going to go to any church. And that's why the Great Commission says, we must go and tell. We're waiting on people to come and hear. And for the most part, it doesn't work that way anymore. If the church is ever going to make an impact in America today, we're going to have to see see the key is in passages like Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9 says that when Jesus saw the multitudes, he had compassion on them because as he looked at them, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that the Lord would cast out more workers out into the harvest field. Ekbalo, cast out. Same word that was used of Jesus driving demons out of people. He said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that the Lord of the harvest, the heavenly Father, would ekbalo, would cast out, throw out people out of the salt shaker, out of the church, that he would cast them out into the vineyard to work. There's that old song that says the father is saying everybody wants to eat at my table but nobody wants to work in my fields. We've got to see the multitudes and like Jesus be moved with compassion. Folks, as we read the Gospels, it's, it's astonishing how... How Jesus had eyes for people. Going through the Gospel of Mark on Wednesday nights here recently, I've been struck by how many times, and those who come on Wednesday night and a part of our chapel study going through Mark, you can testify how many times we've seen Jesus take his disciples and say, Guys, let's get away for a little while. They, they needed some rest. Jesus, Jesus would have them out on a mission. All the multitudes would be coming to them. And they would, they would get in a boat, cross the Sea of Galilee. Jesus would say, let's get away for a little while. They would get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And there would be new multitudes of people who were coming out to them. And Jesus was never angry by that. He started dealing with those people. In fact, we've seen recently in the Gospel of Mark, I think we covered probably something like three or four chapters. And across that span of those three or four chapters, we've noticed a couple of times in a few of those passages, Jesus was still trying to get his disciples away. And every time they were trying to get away, new needs surfaced. And Jesus dealt with it. We need to be like Christ in that regard. As Christians, we need to see that we are in the people business. And we've got to care about people. 
When we love people, then people will take note that Jesus reigns in our heart. Watchman Nee uh, did, has done a lot of writing on the Christian life and on prayer. And I think of a story that Watchman Nee told about some believers in China. And he talked about this one Christian rice farmer. And rice farmers, of course, have to flood their fields with water. And, and he was talking about this old rice farmer. And, and his pump had to be manually uh, pumped. He, he had it set up. It was like a bicycle he'd have to ride and pedal. And as he would, the pump would pump water into his field and flood his rice fields. But he lived next door, his farm was next door to this old pagan unbeliever and that guy was lazy and Watchman Nee said every time this Christian rice farmer would flood his fields he'd turn around and that old pagan neighbor would be lifting up the boards that divided the property and he wouldn't do the work of peddling and flooding his fields he'd wait until this guy flood his field he'd lift the boards and let all the water run over to his fields and flood his fields and that happened day after day after day after day. And finally, this Christian rice farmer said, Lord, you've got to help me here. I don't know why. My rice fields are going to dry up, and this is the only means I have to support my family. You've got to show me what to do. And he continued to pray about that. Well, a few days later, an idea hit him. He decided he'd get up early in the morning. He'd pump that guy's fields full of water first. And then his. Well, not many days after that, you know what happened? He had the opportunity of leading that fella to faith in Christ. We need to be reminded that ministry is not always convenient. The most convenient thing to do is just live our lives and let somebody else do it. But we can't be obedient and do that. Remember what Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, you've got to fan into flames the gift of God that is within you. That gift of God within Timothy was to enable Timothy to carry out ministry, to get involved. What's it going to take for men to say there's a person where Jesus is in charge, where Jesus reigns? It's going to take love. And the Bible says we're able to love because he first loved us. Secondly, a life where Jesus reigns will be a life characterized by principle. You could say conviction or principle. The reason Peter and John got in so much trouble was not simply because of the miracle. In fact, back in chapter 3 verse 12, we're told that Peter opened his mouth and he started preaching Jesus. And then in verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, The priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. What were they preaching? They were preaching the cross. And they were preaching the resurrection. Now to the world today, the cross is just a nice little piece of jewelry that we wear around our necks. It's nothing more than decoration. But not so, men of this time, the cross was an instrument of death. The cross is where the Son of God died for your sins and my sins. And that's why Paul said, if I'm going to glory, I'm only going to glory in the cross. That's the Christian response to the cross. 
Now the world's response can be different. Paul said to the Corinthians, he said to the Jew, the preaching of the cross is foolishness. Because they considered the law the way to get to heaven. And so Paul had to say in the book of Romans, if we could go to heaven through a law, guess what? God would have given us a law. But there's no law by which we can get to heaven by that law. The law is only given to be a mirror to expose our sin. It points out how we fall short of the glory of God. And it points out our need of God's mercy and grace. And that's what we have in Christ. That's the role of the law. The law, as Paul said to the Galatians, is like a schoolmaster, a tutor to lead us to Jesus Christ. But to the Jew, preaching the cross was foolishness. The law cannot save. That's what the Jew needed to see. But you know, that's an offense to some people today because they want to believe so badly that they can do something to accomplish their own salvation. But the cross says what? The cross says, no, there is nothing that you can do to accomplish your salvation. Men are depraved. The total depravity of man. What's Paul say in Ephesians chapter 2? We are dead in trespasses and sins. There is nothing we can do by which to achieve our own salvation. People say, well, at least can I help God out some? Half God, half God and half me? No, the Bible says it's all of grace. And that's what the cross proclaims. It's all of God's doing. All of God's initiative. We need redemption. We desperately need what God has done for us at the cross. Now if you want to talk about the cross as being just a humanitarian example, a good deed, one man dying for others, hey, the world's, uh, they're cool with that. That makes everybody feel good. But if you want to talk about Jesus dying on the cross as necessary for men's salvation, well, you might have a fight on your hands. But Peter and John weren't afraid to preach that message. And they called sin, sin. And they preached not only the cross but the resurrection. And in this crowd there would, be, there, there would have been Sadducees who did not even believe in the resurrection. And so those two doctrines right there, the substitutionary atonement and the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, you start talking about that and you're going to face some opposition in the world. But people in whose lives Jesus reigns They don't care what the world thinks. Look at verse 13. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Peter went on to say, Guys, we must obey God rather than men. And then some would say Peter had the audacity to proclaim what he did in verse 12. There's salvation in no one else. 
no one else but Jesus. So he would have angered the Pharisees who didn't believe in Jesus. He would have angered the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. And he would have angered anybody in the crowd that day who believed that one way to God was just as good as another. Peter didn't mind being an equal opportunity offender. And that's how we've got to be too. He was a man of principle. A man of principle. If we're ever going to win this world of Christ, we're going to have to be men and women of principle who actually believe the gospel and believe it enough to live it and preach it. A problem with the modern day church, the modern day church in many circles doesn't even know what it believes anymore. Doesn't stand for anything anymore. And some congregations, because they they have given up the gospel, they're just running around trying to do a bunch of good deeds and humanitarian deeds, and that's all they're doing. That's all they can do if you really stop and think about it, because they have denied the gospel. They've given up the gospel. They don't have a message to preach. And so sadly, they're just trying to plug other things in to justify their existence. I mean, there's a denomination today that's taken any references to blood out of their hymn books. They don't want to preach that or sing it anymore. They don't want to offend somebody by by talking about a bloody religion. They think to modern ears that'll be offensive. But the Bible says without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness for sins. Folks, from what the Bible teaches, Jesus isn't simply a good way to go to heaven. He's not simply a better way. He's not even the best way. He is the only way. He's the only way. And that's the principle that the apostles lived by. Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered the good news unto you that Christ died for our sins. He was buried. On the third day, he was raised to life again. That's what they preached. Folks, don't forget what the gospel is. We'll never reach a lost world with uncertainty about what the gospel is. The early apostle said there is salvation in no one else. No one other than Jesus. He's the only way. They'd spent time with him. They'd come to that conviction because remember Jesus had taken them away to Caesarea Philippi on one occasion and said whom do men say that I am? And they said oh some say you're Jeremiah or or, uh, Elijah or you're one of the prophets Jesus said but what about you who do you say that I am and Peter said you're the Christ the son of the living God and Jesus said blessed are you Simon Peter flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you but my father who is in heaven they'd spent time with him they knew who he was and they preached it 
they preached Jesus. Folks, that's what we've got. We've got to be men and women of principle and conviction. And if we're uh, men and women of principle and conviction who stand on the gospel, guess what? It doesn't matter what the Supreme Court does. It doesn't matter what the government does. It doesn't matter what Hollywood does. If we're men and women of conviction standing on Jesus, we're not swayed by public opinion. We don't do what we do or preach what we preach based on polls. We preach what we preach and live out the gospel that we live out because we have the principle and the conviction Christ has touched our lives and saved us. And that's why we do what we do. Someone once said to Athanasius who defended Christianity, Athanasius, because of Jesus the whole world is against you. And he responded, then Athanasius is against the whole world. Notice the silence they tried to impose on Peter and John. Verses 17 and 18 tried to charge him to to speak no more in the name of Jesus. Isn't that just like the world? The world says that message you believe, at least what you need to do is just keep it inside the walls of your own church. Just keep it there. Don't bring it out here into the marketplace. We don't want to hear it. Just keep it there. You got to love Peter's response. Men, we must obey God rather than men. That's how we need to be. William Penn said right is right even if everybody is against it and wrong is wrong even if everybody is for it. We need to be guided not by poles but by principle. A third thing I want you to see tonight, a life where Jesus reigns will be a life characterized by fellowship. What is it that Peter and John, why is it that Peter and John were perceived as being men who had been with Jesus? Because they'd been with Jesus. Their lives were Christ-centered. If you fellowship with Jesus, you're not going to have to convince people. They're going to know. We're told here that, that they took note that they were unlearned and ignorant men. Now the first word unlearned means that they were unlettered. They didn't have the sheepskin hanging on their walls from the University of Athens back then. They didn't have that. They didn't have the diplomas from the leading rabbis of their day. The second word means that they didn't run in the highest social circles of the day. Some people today think you've got to have all of that. They fail to see what God does with plain, ordinary men. It's like Paul said to the Corinthians. He said, see, look at your calling. Not many of you mighty or noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And why has he done this? So that no one can boast in the flesh. They can only boast in God. Peter and John were just everyday folks. 
But they had fellowship with Jesus there on the Sea of Galilee. There in the villages, the Decapolis around the Sea of Galilee. There in the home of Mary and Martha. There in the Garden of Gethsemane. There in the temple with the Lord Jesus. There in the wilderness with Jesus. They'd fellowship with Jesus. Verse 8 says, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them. Now that's the secret right there too, isn't it? These men were not inhibited because they were inhabited. They were not inhibited because they were inhabited. They were filled with the Holy Spirit because they'd fellowship with the Lord. And so if we're ever going to be perceived as being people in whose lives Jesus reigns, then we're going to have to fellowship with Jesus. What did Jesus say about that in John chapter 15? Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Abide in me, without me you can do nothing. And in the span of about ten verses there, he used the word abide something like eleven times. Hello? Eleven times in ten verses, abide? Are we supposed to walk away from that passage concluding, I need to abide in Jesus? I think so. Abide, fellowship, commune. You can't get away from that in the scripture. That's where we get the wisdom and the strength to do what we're supposed to be doing. Folks, we've got to understand that this world is not our home. We're just pilgrims passing through. We're to be like those, those who are living. They're looking like Abraham who was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. Peter said we can't help but speak of the things that we've seen, the things that we know. Folks, have you ever noticed that people talk about what they're passionate about? Dr. Jerry Vines used to be the pastor of First Baptist Church, Jacksonville, Florida. He said he was on a plane one time, sat down next to a young man, and they got to talking away. And boy, this young man, he just got on the subject talking about his fiance. Boy, he would just, he'd just gotten engaged, and he was so much in love. That's all he was talking about, his fiance. That's all he could talk about. He said, here, Dr. Vines, I want to show you her picture. And he whipped that wallet out and showed him her picture. Jerry Vines said, now, you know what? I've only seen maybe about two ugly women in my life, and this woman was both of them. But this young man was in love, and love is blind, and he was talking about what he was passionate about. That's what we do, isn't it? We talk about what we're passionate about. If Jesus is in our heart and we fellowship with him, that's who we talk about. I want you to look at your life right now. What, what would you be accused of? Would you ever be accused? People in the world, oh, he's just somebody that it's clear to me 
Jesus is in charge of his life. Would anybody ever accuse you of that? I hope so. I hope I could be accused of that. If not, then what needs to be put in order? Do you need love? Do you need principle? Do you need fellowship? What is it that needs to to change in your life? So somebody would look at your life and say, there's a man, there's a woman, no doubt about it, Jesus reigns in their heart. What steps do you need to take? Purpose in your heart to do a couple of things. Carve out time that you're going to spend with Jesus, that you're going to fellowship with Him. Take His Word and whether you understand it or not, accept it as His Word. Jesus always took God's Word at face value. Let God's Word shape your principles and convictions. And every day, look at where Christ is working around you. And say, God, give me open eyes and open ears that I might see. That I might minister to them. And they might come to the conclusion that Jesus is Lord. And through my ministry to them and through their salvation, somebody would be able to say of them too, there's somebody else in whom Jesus reigns. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you that the early apostles could not be shut up. They spoke of that which they had seen and heard and witnessed and what had changed their lives. Lord, as Christians today, we claim that you have changed our lives. I pray that we'd live like it and speak like it. Forgive us for where we are too much like the world. Lord, help us to build our lives upon your word and be unswerving in our commitment there unswerving in preaching Jesus because there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. God, help us to be crystal clear on the gospel. Help us as your people, as the church, not to vacillate or to be be uncertain. But help us to fan into flames that which you've done in our lives. That the world would see Jesus in us. In his name we pray. Amen. As we sing our hymn of invitation tonight, just right there in your seat, make that your prayer. God, I want my life to be a life that somebody would look at my life and say, no question about it. No question about it. God's touched him. Christ is in control. Make that your commitment tonight.